we have had an amazing time. The, the men's conference was super encouraging to me personally. We've enjoyed so much of our time here. And it is a radically different time than the last time my wife and I came to, to San Francisco in 2003. We met someone famous then, uh, which was remarkable. He has his own Wikipedia page, David Johnson. Uh, you might know him as the Bushman. Uh, and uh, we were not the audience, but we were the acted upon. Uh, so uh, he jumped out and scared the wits out of my wife. Uh, and thankfully, that was an age before video and social media. So there's no record of it on YouTube or anywhere else. But it yeah, etched into our minds for probably 10 plus years, zero desire to return to San Francisco. And uh, in the Lord's kindness, uh, this forced our visit. And we've had such a radically different experience uh, being here uh, this weekend. And it's been a real joy. Uh, we have... Uh, Particularly, uh, Jimmy uh, took us around to see uh, more than I thought was humanly possible in a single day. And, uh, and yeah, it was incredible. So thank you for your care for us. Uh, it's been really good getting time with Pastor Henry, Pastor Raymond, Pastor Roger, uh, Jimmy, Ed, Young, and many of you in just private conversation. So thankful to be here, excited to open up the Word. And as, as we do, I, I was curious and just wanted to just get a sense of one question to you. Who shared the gospel with you? By, by, in other words, who shared the gospel as you kind of came to faith in Christ? As you look back and think about it, and I'm just going to ask for a show of hands, was it a family member? Anyone who heard the gospel from a family member? Okay. Ooh, decent showing. All right. How about from a friend? Someone who's not family, but close friend, somewhat a friend, okay? How about uh, from preaching or from a pastor you believed? Decent representation. A camp, a conference, something like that, some of those? Okay, how about from a stranger you heard the gospel and believed? Oh, wow. This is like triple last service on that one. So that's pretty good. Uh, There is a whole lot of ways we hear the gospel. For me, everything clicked together and I believed... uh, when 1991, I was serving uh, just for a week at the invitation of a friend. I thought I was a believer. I was serving as junior high staff for a week at Hume Lake Christian Camp. And I heard a man named James, Jay Cardi, an ex-LA Laker, preach the gospel. about. And in that, he described what it meant to be a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And I had been all about serving myself and really the um, veil over my heart and eyes was torn down and I realized my sin before the Lord, uh, my complete worship of myself and not of him and understood for the first time what it meant to be um, to have Jesus Christ pay the debt for my sins and believed at that point every Christian learn the gospel from someone and most of the people who have been effective through the years are not people we know about William Carey who's the father of modern missions he heard the gospel in a shoe shop while he was fixing shoes. Charles Spurgeon heard the gospel in a church due to a, thun- and due to a snowstorm where he had to turn aside into the snowstorm. <laughs> and as he took refuge there, it wasn't where he was planning to go. The preacher who was going to show up at that church, he didn't make it either. And so this uneducated man uh, walked up to the pulpit, a tailor, and he began to preach 
all that he knew about Jesus, which apparently took about three minutes, according to Spurgeon. Uh, and he just kept saying the same truths over and over. But that is what actually led him to believe in Jesus Christ. It was what converted him. R.C. Sproul has a great story. Uh, he was in college, and he was going from his dorm out to a party, realized he forgot his cigarettes, turned around, went back in, and a football player who's studying the Bible began to ask him questions and talk to him, shared the gospel, and he believed. Now, the, the common thread through all of these things and, and through most of, of history is that insignificant historically people, people who are unknown, were used greatly of God for his purposes and to bring others to Christ. You all testified to it, right? You raised your hands testifying to how God used unknown people to save you. Uh, In our age, we put a lot of value into experts and influencers now. Uh, There is a whole category of people who are now defined as influencers. And, And even as Christians, we can have our own favorites, our favorite preacher, the guy right there, of course, uh, Pastor Henry, but then, you know, the other guys, maybe MacArthur or Sproul or somebody else who maybe you listen to on a regular basis uh, that, that encourage and challenge you. If you have the news, you have probably these favorite sources you, where you hear news from and your favorite weather channel, your, your favorite thing. You, you have favorite trusted people. We naturally elevate people whom we respect. We, we tend to put a lot of weight into a few men. And so we think, man, if only, if, if only my sister could come to church and hear Pastor Henry preach. If only my coworker could hear Jimmy proclaim the gospel to him. If only Joanna would pray for my mom, I know she would be saved. If only we had a different mayor, if only we had a different governor or president, and things would be so different, and the opposition we face would just change. And we read the Bible, y'all are going through numbers, and you you see the big names. There's Abraham and Moses and Daniel and, and, you know, Peter and Paul, and these big names with a huge impact, and we can think God mainly uses a few people to do great things. And nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is something else entirely. God's plan for you and for me is to be faithful and to live with purpose. He didn't plan for all of the heavy lifting of ministry and all of his purposes to be accomplished by just a few people. He uses, as we all testify together, plain, ordinary people to do his will. Now, last year, uh, our church worked through the book of Acts, and so I'm going to have you open up to Acts chapter 18, which is where we're going to live today, to see some of these truths lived out. I know that you're not used to being in the New Testament. You've lived in numbers for a long time. You just study the book of Ezekiel, so I recognize if it's helpful, it's five books after Malachi. Okay, so I know y'all are a lot in the Old Testament here, but if this is a crispy section, just look for Acts. Acts is the birth of the church, the growth of the church after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Chapter 2 just starts off with describing how the church was really born uh, and on, on the day of Pentecost, and then it takes off from there. It grows and expands in chapter 4, particularly through trials. In chapter 5, it's purified through Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, in chapter 9, you see Paul's conversion. Chapter 10, uh, the beginning of Gentiles being included with Cornelius. In chapter 13, you see Antioch becoming a missionary church that sends Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journey. Then you have Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, where they decide um, that all of us as Gentiles uh, don't need to do anything extra or follow the law, but we're welcomed as full and equal members uh, into God's church. And now in Acts 17, one chapter before we are, Paul starts his second missionary journey. And it doesn't start that good, just transparently. It, it's not the type of journey you would expect for a man like Paul. It's not the, the, the launch into ministry that you would expect. And even though he is going to be the dominant figure through 17 and following, he's not really the man we're going to talk most about today. We're going to talk about more ordinary people. Because what we're going to see is Paul and others are encouraged and Their ministry is magnified because of faithful, ordinary believers around them. Today we're going to look at a couple of the many ordinary people whom God uses to do great things, and that is uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla, who are going to encourage us to live with purpose and remind us of what we're most prone to forget. So when we're in Acts 18, let me fill you in on what just happened at the tail end of 17. Paul visited the first, three missionary, the first three cities in his second missionary journey. He goes to Thessalonica. Thessalonica, he begins to preach the gospel, and some begin to confess. And not long after they begin to believe in Jesus Christ, there is a mob that rises up that actually goes and, and riots outside of the house where Paul was staying. They attack it, and Paul and Silas are basically forced to leave by night under cover, and they go to Berea, pretty close by. In Berea, Paul begins to minister, a few people are saved, and the Thessalonian mob hears about it, and they send the mob to Berea to kick Paul out, to get him out of the area. And so they, the Christians who believe put Paul on a boat, and they send him away. And Paul goes to Athens in chapter 17, and he is... In his spirit, enraged. He sees a city full of idols, and he, though downcast, just can't help himself but say something. He preaches in the synagogues. He talks in the marketplace. He reasons with the philosophers there. And many are interested, but very few actually believe in Athens. And not long after preaching at the Areopagus, he he just leaves. He's kind of dejected. He's discouraged. And this is exactly where Acts chapter 18 picks up. He's feeling down. He's discouraged. There's this little bit of response, but in general, his preaching, it's met with anger or apathy. That's the general response here. And so alone and downcast, Paul wanders to Corinth. It's a city known for being wild, and that's the start of chapter 18, is Paul arriving into Corinth, 50 miles from, out, from Athens, and he meets this couple that I really want you to notice today, Aquila and Priscilla. Look at Acts chapter 18, verse 1, and let's pick up the story there. After these things, all the things I just told you, 
Paul, he, left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and, while, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And we're just going to pause here for a minute, because what, what we see is that when Paul is down, God provides this couple, who we're just going to begin to learn about, to really be this cup of cold water on a hot day, this refreshment and encouragement to him. And what Luke records about Aquila and Priscilla is this amazing encouragement because there's nothing extraordinary about them at all. There's nothing special about them. There's just this faithful couple who lived with purpose in their lives. And their ministry in Acts 18, which is what we're going to trace through the book of Acts 18, chapter 18, is it's going to reveal three truths that we're really prone to forgetting as believers in today. And each each time they're mentioned is going to reveal this truth that we're prone to forgetting. And the first one we see in verses 1 to 3 is that your pain has purpose that's not always perceived. Your pain has purpose that's not always perceived. Paul, we know he left Athens because he was discouraged by the response of people there. And we don't know whether he took the four-hour boat ride to get there or he did the two-day walk. Those were the two ways to get from Athens to Corinth. But both of them, on both of them, he would have been alone with his thoughts. Just thinking, reflecting, considering what had happened, praying, And by the time he gets to Corinth, he is not only alone, but he's short on funds. And so he he goes to the marketplace and finds some tent makers, uh, places where tents are sold, and and he meets them. The, The Jews in that age, they had a saying that if you don't teach your son a trade, you teach him to be a thief. In other words, every young boy, no matter what his um, projected career was going to be, whether he was going to be a Pharisee or a rabbi or a scribe or something that would be more academic, he was still taught a trade, taught how to do something. They wanted to always teach their sons how to do that. Paul learned leather work, which was in that age was predominantly tent making and repair. He's the origin of tent making ministry. So discouraged, no friends, no funds, little funds, Paul goes looking for work. And it's in the tent-making district that he meets Aquila and Priscilla, this couple who'd recently arrived in Corinth. And Luke here in Acts 18, he gives us the background on Aquila. He says Aquila was from Pontus, which is like northern Turkey, but they were in Corinth because they'd been kicked out of Rome. And he, he tells us specifically he's Jewish. And he does this for a purpose because in AD 49, Emperor Claudius kicked out all the Jews from Rome because of the teachings of a man named Crestus. It's another way of saying Christ. And we can't really know for sure what had happened in Rome at that age. There's not a lot of history, but it seems like what had happened is there had been no apostles who visited Rome yet. So you have the church really growing and flourishing in Rome because of Believers who just went there, faithful believers like us, who went there and shared their faith, and the church was growing and growing, to much, so much so that Claudius felt threatened, and he commanded that all Jews would be forced out. So Aquila and Priscilla were believing Jews. They left the friends they made, and they moved away. And I would bet you're familiar with what's being described, right? You have, if you've lived here 
any length of time, if you especially a long time, you have seen people who you love move away from the city and you've lost those friendships. And some of you who are newer to the city probably left behind friends that you loved in coming here. And you're thankful for the church because it's a place to find new, new relationships, but it's a big city and it's easy to feel alone. And then you add into that the fact that for Aquila and Priscilla, tent making was their, their job, their industry. If you think about it, it's like you, they were running a restaurant in Rome and suddenly their restaurant is shut down and they're just kicked out to Merced. So good luck building your own business there again, right? That, that's the, the situation that they're in. It is a place not of joy, but, but of their own sorrow, of incredible difficulty. Is it a painful time for Paul? Yes. Honestly, it's probably been a harder go for Aquila and Priscilla than it has been for Paul. They'd left their friends, they'd had to shut down their business, and their church had been dispersed. But God has this purpose for their pain. He has a plan for it. Right? It's the fulfillment of Romans 8.28 where he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Same truth that Joseph would say to his brothers in Genesis 50.20 that while you meant it evil against me, God meant it for good. And this is exactly what we see here, that our pain, their pain, has purpose, though we don't always perceive it in the moment. Aquila and Priscilla had no idea the plans God had when they were packing up their house in Rome. They just knew the sorrow. That's it. They couldn't have known who they would meet in Corinth as they set up shop there. They just knew, well, we're going to have to figure this out. And they were seeking to be faithful in the midst of what had to be a nightmare. They were trusting the Lord without knowing his plans. And we know that God, now we know that God had purpose for their pains, though they couldn't perceive them. And we need this truth because I'm confident some of you are, are walking through pretty deep waters. With your family, in your own life, you feel weighed down, sometimes feel dark around you. You're worried about what's going to happen next. And you cry out to God sometimes. And sometimes it feels like he listens, and sometimes if he feels distant to you, and you don't always see the way forward and how it's going to get better. That's where they are. You don't understand why God has allowed your life to go the way that it has. And the truth here in Acts 18 is that God has purpose in your pain. You don't always perceive it. Much more so looking back sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. But in the moment, it's very hard to tell. And when Aquila and Priscilla met Paul, God's plan was beginning to unfold. But they still didn't know it at the time. They didn't see it. They were still at that point. They'd lost money in the transition. They'd lost their friends. They were just trusting God. They were doing what 1 Peter 4.19 says. Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. right. We are most prone to looking for an escape, to looking for the way out, to figuring out how we can get out of the pain, the, 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 um, the opposition we feel, the affliction, the suffering. And we need to know God's doing what's right. We need to trust that. There's a girl in our church uh, who I referenced briefly in the 
men's conference yesterday, and she has chronic pain so bad that it's led her to really literally contemplate suicide at times and just have incredibly dark days when she can't imagine going on with life. And that was before surgery. And in the midst of that, as she had to quit her job and just was waiting and hoping for help, her father, who's estranged from her, heard about her situation and stepped in to provide funds, to, to give her money to get by until surgery happened. And he sustained her for a little bit after, and then he just cut it off and left again, which she began to be a little embittered about until she was reminded that, you know, God provided exactly what you needed at that time because you can, you're, you know, you can begin to work now again. And, and we saw, she, while instead of turning from anger to her father, she saw God's care and provision for her in that time. Oftentimes, God leads us and works in a way that isn't clear to us in the moment, but seems best as we look backwards in years to come. So we see Paul now partnering with them. Priscilla and Aquila are already believers from what we read in the text, and they begin to develop this friendship. And they work together for the next couple years, working, resting, ministering together. They would have been in the synagogue every week that Paul's teaching and reasoning in there as he's sharing, uh, sharing about Jesus Christ and preaching him. And Paul, for the very first time on this second missionary journey, he see, begins to see spiritual fruit. He begins to see people converted and, and this While he had feared ministry in Corinth, this incredibly immoral city, it was receptive to the gospel in a way that he didn't expect. Uh, Incredibly so. And so that two years later, when he finally set sail, Aquila and Priscilla go with him. They've begun to be a bit bound together in ministry. Look at Acts chapter 18, verse 18, and you'll see this next. After this, Paul stayed many days longer. And then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And at century he'd cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. But when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. On taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. So he leaves them in Ephesus after they leave Corinth together. Now, the second truth that we're going to see here is that your job is a platform, not a purpose for your life. Your job is a platform for ministry, not the purpose of your life. Looking backwards to Corinth, when Aquila and Priscilla landed in Corinth, they began to set up shop, they began to develop relationships and build new things. They invested into the church there, they maintained relationships with the people. In fact, for years to come, they did this. But after a couple years of ministry alongside of Paul in Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla choose to leave what had begun to be flourishing and fruitful. They stepped out of it. Why? They actually traveled across the Aegean Sea. They land in Ephesus. It's another two-day journey, another step removed from where they had started off. And they actually bounce around. I'm not going to spend all the time tracking it in Acts, but let me just give you the chronology. If you have the digital notes, you would even see this in there. They lived in Rome until about 49 AD, at which point they were kicked out by Claudius. They then lived in Corinth for about three years, from 49 to 52 AD, which is when Paul left and headed to Ephesus. 
They were in Ephesus from 52 to 55 AD, another three and a half, four years. And then they went back to Rome. We don't know for how long they got there in 56. But we know that by 67 or so AD, they were in Ephesus because there's another letter written. So so here's what happens. They start off in Rome, they're kicked out, they go to Corinth, they begin to minister, and they serve really faithfully there. They work alongside Paul and then leave with Paul to go to Ephesus. They stay in Ephesus when Paul goes home to Antioch, and they keep ministering there. And as Paul begins his third missionary journey, journey, and is sent out by Antioch again, he goes back to Ephesus, and they're not there anymore. They're actually gone. He writes to First Corinthians in he writes First Corinthians from Ephesus in fifty five A.D. In First Corinthians sixteen, verse nineteen, he actually greets Aquila and Priscilla, who are now hosting uh, the church in their house. Then, in the end of the third missionary journey, he writes Romans from Corinth, and they're they're gone from there. They're now living in Rome around fifty six A.D., hosting a new church in their house. So we read Romans 16, verses 3 to 5, and it's just a great description of them. Great, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my own life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that's in their house. We fast forward again to Paul, who then ends up in Rome awaiting death and in jail. He's writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's near the end of his life. He's writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, and he actually sends greetings to Priscilla and Aquila. It's like they traded spots. So he's now in Rome. They've left Rome, and they're back in Ephesus. This couple moved around to minister. That's all I want you to take away from this. Did you track where they went? It's fine. I don't care. What I want you to hear is they moved a lot. In a time when movement was hard and relationships were long and jobs were hard, they moved. I don't know if they had a franchise, a multinational tent-making industry, not really clear on that, or if they just moved their business from city to city. But here's what we do know. They weren't pastors. They weren't missionaries. They were just normal people. They were never paid by a church. They, They simply worked a job and poured out their lives in ministry. And that's the truth we're prone to forgetting, that our jobs are not the purpose of our lives. It's just a platform to provide for our families and to minister to others, right? I, I, I love capitalism. I think it's the, the, the best system. And yet the lie of capitalism is that we're earning for ourselves. We, we head to work and we find our value and our identity there. We define ourselves and who we are based on our job and our income. So much so that when you go to the doctor's office, the first thing that the nurse asks you, first thing she asks me, what do you do? It wasn't like, let me take your blood pressure. That would be more helpful. No, what do you do? Right? Then you go and the doctor came in. The next thing he asked, the first thing he asked when he comes in is, oh, what do you do? It's how we understand one another so often in this world, but it is not our identity. Christian, your job is not your identity. You may be an amazing teacher, salesperson, law enforcement officer, welder, uh, driver, whatever, engineer. Your job is not the purpose of your life. It's just a platform. It's a means to an end, and the end is not retirement. God is providing work and income and money for people so that they can use it for others. 
First Timothy chapter 6 says that. Ephesians 4.28, I love because it says it this way. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him work, doing honest labor with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You'd expect it to say, so that he can provide for himself and not have to steal. It's not it. Let him work so that he can share with others who have needs. That's why he's to work. Everything that God has given to us, whether it's a rented room or a vacation home, it is a stewardship. It's a platform for you to show off Jesus Christ and his greatness. On uh, NPR a while back, I was listening uh, to them interview a coffee shop owner that was winning just all these awards. It was, it was amazing. It won national awards, and it was run by Christians. And the coffee was great, and the locals didn't like it. Do you know why? Because of how the owners would talk about Jesus there. And in the interview on NPR, the owner responded to the accusations by saying, we're Christians, so we're motivated by the glory of God. Of course, that affects the quality of each drink we make and the care we put into it. And that naturally leads to good conversations about our product and about who we are as well. That's, that's exactly it. That man's doing just what we're called to do, to work with excellence and to use our job as a platform to glorify God. That's it, to minister to others. Aquila and Priscilla got it. They used their work for kingdom purposes. They moved in order to invest into others. They hosted churches in their homes. Then we'll see shortly that they also invested into individuals. Don't know what this looks like right now in your family. But I can say whether you are in the front end of life when you're starting your family and the car seats are growing, or you're in your peak earning years, or maybe you're retired and living off a fixed income, no matter what your present situation is, you have this incredible choice before you on how you're going to live, right? About who you're going to put first and what you're going to invest into. Our our church, Faith Bible Church, down in the unknown city of Murrieta, uh, it was begun by uh, me and a group of guys, most of whom were lay guys. In fact, when we started, I worked a job uh, an hour away as well. And we, uh, all of them, and many of them still, uh, basically worked 50, 60 plus hours a week and rose early and stayed up late to pray, to study the word, to minister. We hosted and we still host everything in our homes. We're still a portable church. We don't have a building. I'm here and I'm kind of envious of what you've got. This is amazing. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't have any of this. We meet in a high school uh, and we hope when we, <laughs> we have church property we're building on has one facility on it, which is a trash enclosure, uh, which we were forced to build and nothing else yet. So one day we hope to have a building that does more than house trash, but it's a kind of a statement about us as well. So... Uh, the church was begun with them ministering. Uh, we're a lay-run church still. Uh, you look across, and we, we have four full-time staff and eight, 900 people. We, we are, in God's grace, we are, all of our ministries are largely led by people who are just like you, who serve faithfully, as many as I saw some people doing yesterday, who believe that they're jobs are a platform for ministry. Our growth, we're, we're as bad as y'all at advertising. We don't do that uh, at all. People come to Christ through relationships with other people. And, and that's what we're called to do, 
just to be faithful, ordinary believers who use our jobs, who use our schooling, our education, everything we have for ministry, to, to pour ourselves out. It's not the purpose of our lives. Uh, it's fine to have paid pastors. First Timothy 5 uh, affirms that. We're supporting men for ministry. Uh, but the most, the majority of ministry, the health of the church hinges on all of you. That's what the Word of God says over and over. And your job is a platform for ministry, not the purpose of your life. Uh, now, look back at Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Let, let's move into this individual who then we see this next amazing truth from. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. Verse 25. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when Barnabas then, or sorry, Apollos wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was a Jesus. Now, Apollos is amazing, off the charts amazing. He deserves his own sermon. He is this Egyptian man who came from the second largest city in the empire. He came from Alexandria. Uh, it was the, if Rome is the, like the capital of the government, Alexandria is the capital of learning. It's this massive city full, full of learning. Apollos is this well-educated man. He is gifted. He knew the scriptures very, very well. He's bold. He's willing to speak. He's eloquent. He's full of faith. Verse 25 says he's fervent in spirit. That means literally he's like, he's boiling. He's on fire. Uh, And it seems that he's already a believer. He's accurate in what he said, just incomplete in knowledge. He knew the gospel. He understood that all of the law had been given to point to him to say, "You, you can never save yourself. That no matter how good you try to be, you can't save yourself. That you need a Messiah. You need a Savior. You need foreign righteous to be infused and granted to you. He understood that in his failings, if he put his hope into Jesus Christ, who hung on the cross for his sins and bore the weight of his sins and the wrath of God for them, that he would be saved. That in, in he repented and believed. That, that much is pretty clear from the text. What, what he lacked is less clear. We can tell clearly he didn't know about the coming and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He may not have known about the inclusion of the Gentiles. Maybe he didn't know all the facts of what happened after Jesus' resurrection. But the key thing is verse 26. Look at that. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. As soon as Apollos begins to preach in front of others, Aquila and Priscilla, they they heard him and they knew he needed some help. And so they invite him to their home, maybe out for some shawarma, we don't know. They have this hard conversation. And Apollos, this educated, bold preacher, is sat down by a tent maker and his wife, And because he's a humble man, he listens and he accepts their correction. And this is really the third point, which has kind of been sneaking up on us, which is that your ministry, just like theirs, may be private and not public. 
Your ministry may be private, less visible, and not public. Apollos, he's going to go big. He is going to be adored by the church. But whose ministry was required for this to happen? It's Aquila and Priscilla. Apollos would not have been the man of God that he was without them. This quiet, ministry-minded lay couple is behind the man of God that Apollos develops into. Their instruction of him is like throwing gas on fire, and he just starts to blaze all the more brightly for Jesus Christ because of them. And maybe it's because of his time with them that he then wants to go to Corinth, but by that time, the church in Ephesus is writing letters of introduction for him. And once he gets to Corinth, Apollos is so effective and so loved that people are going to brag for years about being baptized by him. Oh, you were baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. It's in there. He's this amazingly gifted evangelist and preacher. He's particularly effective at witnessing to Jews. In fact, some think he may have been the author of Hebrews. And as important as he would become to the early church, Apollos really would have been nothing without Aquila and Priscilla. They were the ones who refined him and shaped him. And sometimes we wrongly elevate the public ministry of men who preached in front of us And we forget that the private work of ministry in homes, in hallways, in coffee shops is of incredibly high value for the kingdom. That's the truth here. A lot of longing that particularly young men have for a greater platform for ministry is a result of blindness to the incredible opportunities and responsibilities around you right now. And Aquila and Priscilla are aware of how God made each of them. We don't know their spiritual gifts. It may have been giving, maybe it was uh, hospitality. We know it wasn't teaching because they always appear in a support role to others. They, they never appear out in front. They're always underneath and behind. And from all that we see, they, they just simply embraced how God made them. They embraced the nature of private ministry. They recognized they didn't need to be public and out front. They wanted to work behind the scenes. Some years ago, I led a short-term team to New Zealand uh, where we did outreach and children's ministry and some other things. And uh, there was a man named Lane. He's now a deacon in our church. Uh, at that time, he wasn't. He just came on the trip and to help out. And we gave him opportunities to be up front, and he would do it if we asked. But where he thrived and where he was joyful was actually behind the scenes, assisting and helping anyone else who was doing things that was going to be up front. He, he was the model of this. He flourished in serving others. His preference, if he got to choose, would be to be at the back of the room or alongside and uh, helping. He was happier. He was less stressed. He was more fruitful. He had no desire to be up front and just love to serve alongside someone who was. Sweet guy. He understood how God had made him, and he still does that to this very day. Uh, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse 7, it says, To each of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, God has made each one of us uniquely and specially for the benefit and health of the whole church. He's gifted you in different ways. He hasn't made us all to be alike. And so often we, we want to be like someone else rather than embracing how God has made us. The Spirit of God made Lane to be who he is. He gave him all the gifts required for him to be maximally effective, and he made you just as you are with all the gifts you have to use 
for his glory and pleasure, in a way that's going to serve the church best, in a way that's going to bring you more joy than you realize. You don't need to look like someone else whom you admire. You need just to be faithful with who God has made you to be. Your ministry may be private, doesn't need to be public. That doesn't at all make it less valuable. In fact, it's more valuable. That's what 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 22 says, is that the ministry of the members that are unseen is more necessary. The ministry of weaker members is more necessary. And in fact, without Aquila and Priscilla, I don't think Apollos could have ever been as effective as he was. They, they made his ministry. They were critical to his success. And rather than destroy him for being imperfect... They instead ministered to him and made him stronger. They helped him become a trusted man of God. So, hear me. This church needs you. San Francisco Bible Church needs every one of you. You are essential to its health. You don't need this public, visible, out-in-front platform to be used by God. The most important ministries in the church are the hidden ministries, the hidden investments. At our church, there's an older couple who faithfully prays for our community groups. We have 14 community groups, and just uh, it's half of our church is in one or so, a lot, a lot of people. They are as healthy and as fruitful, the community groups are, I'm convinced because of the prayer of this couple. Every day they're praying for a different community group. They're praying for the leaders. They're praying for the people in it. They're praying for the health of our church. And God uses that. It, most people in our church have no idea they're doing that. And I can't imagine what, what they would be like without their prayers and efforts. However you're gifted, we're called to live with purpose. That's the main lesson we see in Aquila and Priscilla, that their whole lives are spent on mission, serving the church while living life. And so it just returns us to that central question of asking if you're living with purpose, if you're spending your days with purpose, and maybe you've forgotten the outsized influence that unknown Christians exercise for the kingdom of God. People just like you and me, who aren't going to be known in the history books, are used to do great things for the kingdom. They are what we are what build the church. You don't need a public ministry to be effective. You, you don't um, need to find your identity in your job. You don't need to think that your pain is pointless. Like all of this is God bringing about his perfect plan for you so that his church would grow and the gospel would be more known. He's appointed how you're made, what you would do with your life, and what happens to you along the way, all so that you can bring him maximum glory. And he's just looking for you to be faithful for his purposes. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this time just to look briefly at what you have called us to be. Faithful, ordinary believers who live for your great and wonderful kingdom. We freely confess how easy it is to be distracted, to think too much of ourselves, and to look at the world around us with too little hope. Lord, the men and women here I know live in a dark place, and yet you have people here we believe who you are saving. There's newer believers here, and we believe there's more in the city. Help um, 
the men and women of San Francisco Bible Church to live brightly for your purpose, to serve faithfully for you, to recognize that you have perfect plans and ways, that you don't need anyone special. You just need believers who are faithful. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.